Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and this is my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. Let me remind you that you can also follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows, and I'm on Twitter at Mark Galliotti and Facebook at Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast of wholly variable length, frequency and format is produced in part thanks to its supporters on Patreon, who, depending on their generosity, also get access to exclusive materials and other perks. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. Now, on to today's show. This week, Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin used a public video session with President Putin to announce that he has COVID-19 and was self-isolating. And this seems a suitable opportunity to use the two halves of this podcast to explore two kinds of power in Russia. Formal institutional power, through Mishustin's example and that of the Prime Minister, and then look using Igor Sechin, head of Rosneft, to consider informal personal power. Now, I don't really think I need to give a spoiler alert to the extent to which that the latter is broadly more significant. That's a little bit like expecting you to be surprised by the news that no senior Russian official lives off his salary alone. But there are some complexities to the relationship between the two that I think are worth teasing out. So Mishustin's on sick leave, and his first deputy, 61-year-old Andrei Balusov, is acting prime minister in his stead. Some have read significance in the fact that Putin actually formally signed a decree to this effect, given that the first deputy prime minister takes over automatically when the premier is ill or otherwise not on the job. The implication that they've drawn is that Mishustin will not be returning to the position, that although he was appointed in January, that was a different world, a different time, when the skill set he brought to the job, which is one of essentially managing the grand national projects, but most importantly of all, technocratic modernization um, of a system that was essentially working, is not the same as crisis management. And it certainly didn't help that Putin very ostentatiously crossed something off on the paper in front of him as Mishustin was speaking. Um, I don't necessarily think that he was actually crossing, crossing Mishustin off his... Uh, Christmas card list, but nonetheless, it certainly didn't help. Look, I don't actually know if Mishustin is going to be coming back or not. Actually, replacing him would mean, by law, replacing the entire government. And I'm not convinced that the middle of a pandemic is exactly the time for a government reshuffle, especially given that this government itself isn't really fully complete. Besides which, as a state Duma representative, Pavel Krasheninikov, told Commerçant, This is actually quite a practical and constitutional move. Aspects of the workflow of being Prime Minister, and particularly access to top-secret materials, aren't transferred just because the First Deputy takes over because, I don't know, the Prime Minister's on holiday or otherwise indisposed. So this presidential decree allows for the regularisation of the situation. It means Belousov actually will have access to the full range of powers and informations that the Prime Minister needs. So, at present, look, one can argue it both ways, and we're just going to have to wait and see. But what is interesting is precisely that there is so much fuss and interest about a position which many regard as pretty much that of a factotum. Essentially, that you are just simply working at the behest of an all-powerful president, and therefore, in theory, shouldn't really matter who the Prime Minister is. So it's worth, I think, dwelling a little bit on quite what the Prime Minister does and what this tells us about power in Putin's Russia. 
Now, first of all, the key way, I think, of understanding the prime minister's role is that he is the major domo, the head butler at the court of the Tsar. In this respect, I mean, I think this, it highlights this key distinction between what we could think of as the officials and the aristocrats, also sometimes described as the difference between the managers and the shareholders of Putin's Russia Incorporated. Now, that makes it sound as if essentially, again, he's just simply the person who makes sure that the silver is polished and dinner arrives on time. But it's not quite as cut and dried as that. I mean, anyone who's read P.G. Woodhouse will know that there is a special kind of power being Jeeves to a Wooster and being the calm and self-effacing man of business on whom the Lord and Master can rely. And one of those ways that that power is manifest, and I think this is the second one, is that the Prime Minister becomes an alternative source of information. Because essentially the Prime Minister, along with the intelligence services, is one of the few, shall I say, institutionally mandated channels of information to the President that is not actually curated and mediated by the presidential administration. Now, in a future podcast, I'm going to be coming back to look at the presidential administration in more detail, because as far as I'm concerned, it is without any doubt the single most powerful institution in all of Russia. Um, it is the, the body that not, doesn't just cradle and cocoon and protect the president, but also informs him. But on the other hand, as I said, so the president relies on the information that he is given to make his decisions, he is the boss. He is the decider. But the prime minister does have a chance to paint a picture for him, does have a chance to influence the options that the president thinks are on the table um, and the facts or the, at least the assumptions on which he makes the decision. And this is going to be one of the interesting areas where we see a difference between Mishustin and Belousov. Um, that precisely Belousov, first of all, is in geopolitical terms a hawk. You know, he's publicly come out and saying that he thinks that Russia is encircled by a ring of enemies and so forth. But also in, in economic management terms, he is much more of a dirigiste manager. He sees Russia in some ways as one great big factory that has to be run, rather than a, a complex economy which needs to be controlled often by indirect means. In this respect, I would suggest that Mishustin was, was a more subtle man. I'm not sure, though, if subtlety is a plus or a minus in these terms. So, again, I mean, absolutely, the fact that Mishustin is going to um, no longer be in, going to be in a position to, to influence policy as much, and Belousov will come in and will now have that direct channel to the president, is going to matter. Now, the third way in which the prime minister's role matters is essentially as the Tsar's flak vest. Um, it is the president's job to claim the credit for everything that goes right, it is the Prime Minister's job to accept, on behalf of the government, the blame for everything that goes wrong. And this is, it has to be said, one of the least satisfying and least fair elements of the job. But there you go, I don't think we need to be shedding any bitter tears for the people who decide to be Putin's Prime Ministers. Medvedev, bless him, was, of course, very um, good at this, shall we say. But we are going to have to see how things work out now, because the interesting thing is that the coronavirus crisis, and, and a crisis it is, um, absolutely 
plays to Putin's weaknesses and his blind spots. And it's really quite telling that we've seen recent polling that suggests that actually Putin is now being regarded widely as being less effective than regional governors, who are precisely the people on whom he dumped the job. Now, the reason why this matters is because it becomes rather less effective to treat your federal government leader, in other words, your prime minister, as your scapegoat when you have already, in a way, transferred responsibility for what happens to governors who are not members of the federal government. So in some ways, I think Putin may, may have outsmarted himself by precisely sort of shucking responsibility so quickly to the regions. And more to the point, has reduced the capacity of the prime minister to be his ablative armour. The fourth important point about being prime minister is of course that you are the designated successor as we saw with Putin in 1999. Now it's quite interesting actually that on the whole you know, other prime ministers haven't necessarily done all that well. We have for example Sergei Kirienko who is currently first deputy head of the presidential administration. There's Mikhail Fralkov who then became head of the foreign intelligence service and is now head of the Russian Institute for Strategic Studies, the infamous RISI, which actually suggests a steadily downward trajectory, I would say. And, of course, there is Medvedev himself, who is now deputy chair of the Security Council, a position that we still have no idea what it actually means, whether that's just simply some kind of honorific sinecure or whether that actually might mean something. But in any case... We have to ask, well, OK, is the fact that your designated successor now a factor? Look, no one expects Putin to go imminently. But the point is, what it does mean is that any appointment is inevitably then scrutinised for clues to the succession. Now, I don't see either Mishustin or Belousov as being presidents in waiting. But nonetheless, it does mean that people will inevitably look at the individual who is chosen with an eye the notion of succession. And it would be interesting if Putin in the future is minded to appoint someone who has the apparent charisma and dynamism and drive and status to be a presidential candidate, whether actually that would immediately make him, in effect, uh, a lame duck president, because people would make all kinds of assumptions, which probably means that he will continue until he finds his successor, to go for relatively bland managerial candidates. But anyway, so, so these are the kind of different roles in which um, the prime minister actually fits within the system. And it all matters. The prime minister does play an essential role within the Putin system, keeping the machinery of the state uh, well-maintained, oiled and fueled. This is absolutely essential. But so too is the work, let's face it, of rubbish collectors, sewage and utility workers, and, as we're now discovering, supermarket workers. But no one's suggesting that they're actually powerful. So, yes, the Prime Minister is useful. What can we say about whether the Prime Minister is powerful? Well, first of all, there's very little evidence that he can tell the big beasts of the system what to do. People like you know, Defence Minister Shoigu, the intelligence services. Frankly, even Foreign Minister Lavrov actually take their cues from the president, from the presidential administration or the Security Council appropriately, 
and do not in a way report directly in a, a real sense to the Prime Minister. Now we don't tend to see open splits but the reason for that is frankly it's because an, intelligence, an intelligent Prime Minister does not push the issue. If you know that you don't really control these people, better to work with them than to pretend that you can actually tell them what to do. In other words, the president calls the tune. However, to follow the metaphor through, that it's the prime minister who conducts the orchestra. That means that obviously you, you are playing the tune that the president has decided, but you do have the opportunity to influence the tempo, the pace, the overall way in which that tune is played. I mean, it's quite striking, after all, that after appointing Belousov, Vladimir Putin reassured Mishustin that, in fact, he would be consulted, though it's worth noting consulted rather than asked to approve, any substantive changes to economic policy. Now, the implication of that is precisely that being Prime Minister matters, that Belousov, who definitely does have a very different economic perspective, could actually influence it. So, I mean, there is a clear understanding that, that there is a degree of influence. But that's the point. This is the power of administration. It's the power to influence the boss. It's the power to influence the, the boss's worldview. And the power to influence the boss's notion of what options are there on the table. This is, in other words, the world of that splendid British sitcom, Yes, Prime Minister, and then Yes, Minister, in which absolutely ministers decide, but the civil servants, usually not with quite the same suave aplomb of a Sir Humphrey Appleby, but they nonetheless often are in a position to, to shape the way in which the ministers get to make those decisions. There's a particularly poignant example that uh, I can't say it's been proven, but I have had it from more than one source who I think is actually really quite well informed. And it actually relates to both the current crisis and also Medvedev's own reputation. And that is that when the Russian government under Putin was drawing up the grand, some would say grandiose, new listing of national projects, it was actually Medvedev who was successful in pushing, making healthcare one of the particular areas of, of, of priority. And the way that this was done was rather than just simply saying healthcare is important and Russians are dying and Russians deserve to have better national coverage, it was very much framing it as a security issue in terms of the fact that uh, actually this will help ensure that we have fit young men to go and join the army, that the economy is safe, that we don't necessarily have to bring in so many foreign migrant labourers and such like. And it's precisely the skill of knowing how to frame your own policy proposals in ways that actually will appeal to the boss. That is one of the key skills of the courtier and the prime minister in the Russian system. Sadly, as with so many other aspects of the national projects that don't just simply involve building something obvious, brackets, from which certain individuals can make huge amounts of embezzled kickbacks, close brackets, and the healthcare priorities haven't been doing all that well. But nonetheless, it is, I think, an interesting example of the fact that uh, history might perhaps give Medvedev a slightly better record than many of us, including myself, have done at the time.
But again, this is the thing. This is how you work as the Prime Minister. You can't enforce, you can't impose, but perhaps you can influence. So that's the Prime Minister. Of course, I've ignored the time that Putin spent as Prime Minister, 2008-2012, because that was really more like the time the Lord's son played dress-up as the butler. It's not exactly the same thing as when Putin moved from the Kremlin to the White House, uh, Russian White House, I should add, before the conspiracy theorists prick up their ears. He took a massive helping of executive power with him. One role the Prime Minister doesn't seem to have, though, is as a representative of the government, presenting a unified front to Putin. And that's in part because ministers seem to think it more productive to lobby the body in person. And they're probably right, because, as we'll see in the second half of this podcast, at the court of the Tsar, real power is personal. Now, tell me... What were the scandals associated with Medvedev? Hmm. Well, um, his assets clearly outmatch his official salary. Um, but frankly, I think we'd be more surprised if he had seemed to live on that of, I think it was about $105,000 a year, which incidentally is way below an Italian MP's €167,000. What else? Well, th- there was the leather jacket. And, of course, some of his particularly memorable quotes. uh, Freedom is better than non-freedom. Then there was the one almost of of Zen profundity. Those who play badminton well take decisions quickly. Or is that merely shallow banality? You decide. Anyway, the the point is that there isn't much there. What what about Mishustin? Mm, I suppose there's writing mediocre lyrics for chanson pop singer Grigory Lieps, perhaps. But, 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 what about Igor Sechin, head of Rosneft? Oh, boy. Well, there was obviously, there's essentially framing Minister of Economic Development Alexei Ulyukaev in 2016, and then really demonstratively not even bothering to turn up for court to give his evidence against him. There was gathering his own gang of clients within the Federal Security Service, the so-called Sechin's Spetsnaz, of the Security Services 6th Department, much to the embarrassment of FSB Director Alexander Bortnikov, it's worth mentioning. Driving Russian policy on Venezuela, even. I mean, frankly, Ministry of Foreign Affairs insiders are quite candid in admitting that they are not calling the shots, rather that it's Rosneft, and they just have to follow its lead and, to be blunt, pick up the pieces afterwards. Um, And this includes, obviously, Russia's support for the Chavez and then Maduro uh, regimes, despite a very, very keen awareness of just how incompetent, corrupt and generally dysfunctional this was. And then, of course, in March, dumping Brosneft's toxic assets in Venezuela, selling them to a firm which is obviously controlled by, owned by the Russian government, in a deal that at once extricated Rosneft from this sanctions-hit basket case of a country and also managed to reduce the Russian government's hold on Rosneft in the process. Um, Being the prime mover probably behind Putin's rather very foolish decision to pick a fight with Saudi Arabia over oil pricing just at the time when global pandemic was anyway going to make demand and thus pricing tank, And then, 
after Russia has been forced into a rather embarrassing volte face, which was, is going to involve a certain amount of reduction in pumping capacity, making sure that Rosneft is essentially exempted from most of those cuts and instead the burden goes on to other companies. Ah, what else? I suppose, really, it's this overarching point that he's actually not very good at running Rosneft, in my opinion, as a business rather than as an empire. In what some unkind souls might consider to be almost a pyramid scheme, when Rosneft needs cash... He just uses his economic and political muscle to take over smaller and more efficient rivals. The classic example would be Bashneft, whose um, owner, Vladimir Yevtushenkov, was arrested in 2014. Um, if you are a rival of Sechin's, you do have a marked tendency to find yourself in trouble with the law. This is a firm that accounts for, what, 5 to 6%, I think, of the world's crude output. It matters. It matters to Russia. And yet, who actually is calling the shots here? When Sparebank analysts uh, issued a report in 2017 with sort of critical comments on, on Rosneft, and particularly this section, we need to talk about Igor, um, Rosneft launched this furious uh, campaign in response. Most recently, when the business newspaper Viedomosti um, recently ran a critical piece on Sechin, the new editor, Andrei Shmarov, cut it, perhaps because he feared to, to poke the bear. Um, the claim that, his, that Sechin's nickname in Russia is Darth Vader, I don't know where that came from. I certainly haven't heard it from anything other than Western journalists. But nonetheless, it could just as well be. This is a scary man. And a deeply unpopular man, even with other officials. I'm very, very striking that. So you have this, this micromanaging workaholic who has a what penchant for hunting, and that's as much a hobby as his business strategy, who could really be described as a liability to Putin and Putin's Russia. First of all, because it pushes bad policy. We've seen this with the OPEC and Venezuela cases. Secondly, because it involves bad stewardship of an absolutely crucial national resource. And thirdly, because it's bad politics. I mean, actually, Sechin's capacity to scare people reaches a point of being dysfunctional. Um, the Ulyukhaev case, absolute case in point. Um, that really alarmed the elites as well as alarming business. It alienates many people. And although on one level that makes Sechin sort of the, probably one of the figures that I think would be most likely to be thrown under a bus if there was some kind of dramatic shift in, in Russian politics and the elite had to claim that it had changed. I mean, I think Sechin and Kadyrov will be vying for that particular accolade. But nonetheless, for all of these reasons, there's absolutely no signs, at the moment at least, that his activities are going to catch up with him. Why? Well, Ulyukhaev was widely respected, um, but he was, again, the classic example of a technocrat official. He was not close to Putin. Bortnikov the FSB. I mean, he's been able to very slowly exclude and dilute Sechin's Spetsnaz, and I'll be wanting to look at uh, 
reforms within the FSB. Well, when I say reforms, I mean changes within the FSB um, in a future podcast. But even then, he could never directly target them or make a public issue of Sechin's baleful role within the FSB. Why? Well, again, Bortnikov may be an eighth-level spook, but Sitchin is a tenth-level crony. This is what it's all about. Putin has an intensely personal approach to power, I would suggest. Um, And I know this is now dipping into the realms of pop psychology, but bear with me. I I see Putin as someone who doesn't make close human connections easily. And that means I think he is deeply, deeply connected to those with whom he does. Let's call them his gang. Now, to them, he seems willing and able to deny nothing. So long as they remain loyal, and I think this is the key thing, loyalty is one of the crucial qualities by which he measures the whole world around him. Sechin has a backstory with Putin. He was his loyal bagman back in St. Petersburg, then deputy and henchman since. This is a man who carried Putin's luggage, who organised his schedule, who literally sharpened his pencil, And that's not some colourful euphemism, I should mention. He's also reportedly the man privy to many of the more shadowy deals whereby Putin and his friends made their money in the 1990s and the noughts. The kind of deals so lovingly, almost pornographically detailed in Karen Dawisha's Putin's Kleptocracy and Catherine Belton's more recent Putin's People. If I dip deeper into this, I mean, I would suggest that Putin is actually a deeply insecure and lonely individual. Bless him. I'll be profiling some of the other figures in his circle in future podcasts and speculating on their role. But I see Sechin as the the tough guy that the outsider kid really wants to like him. Um, And certainly Sechin's passionate and ruthless defence of his own interests is probably something that, that strikes a chord with Putin. Whatever. The point is that at the very highest level in this system, personal access and presidential friendship are the ultimate resources. The Sechins, the Rotenbergs and the like are not powerful because they're rich. I mean, actually, ironically, Sechin is just like number 47 on the Forbes Russian rich list. They're rich because they're powerful and that they can monetize Putin's favours. You can be a political liability. Uh, you can not even do your job that well. But if you are loyal, and I should, I suppose I should mention in that context, uh, Rosneft has just announced, perhaps after, coincidentally, I'm sure, the OPEC screw-up and the Venezuela little sort of gambit, um, that they are putting up to $1 billion uh, behind a genetic research project run by Maria Varantsova, who is meant to be Putin's uh, oldest daughter. But anyway, if you are loyal, then you're going to be fine. But I think this is the last point I'd want to make for today. It's not the single key for understanding Russia. A model that I've been thinking about for a while is in a way to try and understand Russia, you should realise that there are three Russias. At base, there is normal Russia, one in which people are essentially doing their jobs, living their lives. Maybe there's a bit of graft here and so forth. And, but basically speaking, people are just living lives like everywhere else. Above that, though, there is kleptocratic Russia, 
There is the Russia of the oligarchs and the minigarchs of the officials at the higher levels with all their embezzlement schemes and so forth. And when their interests coincide with that of normal Russia, then everything is fine. And much of the time it does. Streets get repaved. Maybe a little bit more expensively than they might otherwise, but they get repaved. The hospitals does get built. You know, all these things do happen, but people are making their money on top of it. And then there is the smallest top level, the one that's really around Putin, which is, I don't know, sometimes I call it ideological, but that's not quite right. Maybe heroic is actually a better formulation. Um, driven by Putin's notion of his role in history and of a Russia that is, well, to use Putin's phrases, has been lifted up off its knees, um, once again regaining its place in the world. And the interesting thing is that clearly this has priority over kleptocratic Russia when their interests do not coincide. Often, again, they do. The Rotenbergs can make a lot of money building a bridge to Crimea, but nonetheless, they are also going to build a bridge to Crimea to ensure that Crimea is reintegrated into the motherland. But sometimes the interests will clash. Kleptocrats are going to have to, for example, accept losses from sanctions because Russia is at war with the West, or however you want to frame it. So three worlds, and although in broad terms, heroic beats kleptocrat, kleptocrat beats normal, the main point is that these all still exist. Russia is an authoritarian kleptocracy, but it's not just an authoritarian kleptocracy. It's a normal country having to work around and cope with there being a bunch of arrogant and thieving house guests who've made themselves at home in the kitchen and who are happily plundering the larder and abusing the facilities, and pocketing the family silver. But nonetheless, around them, family life continues. So the president is the representative of heroic Russia. The cronies, the Sechins of this world, are essentially representatives of kleptocratic Russia. Now, the prime minister may also be doing very well for himself, may also share the ideals of a Russia up off its knees. But essentially, the prime minister's job is to be the representative of, believe it or not, normal Russia. The normal Russia on whom everyone and everything else rely. The lord of the manor is partying with his house guests and friends. They're knocking back the drink. They're looking forward to dinner. But the point is that if the head butler is not doing his job then everyone, everyone is going hungry. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.
товарищ прав.